Hegenomy has had several different related but distinct meanings over the years. The word is originally derived from a Greek word that means authority, rule, and political supremacy, but it's also related to another Greek word that means leader. In the 5th century BCE, the word was applied to Sparta, which was a city-state that was the first among all other city-states in the Peloponnesian League the area that we might today look at and say, oh yeah, that's Greece. At the time, that region was actually a collection of tiny nations with a similar heritage all working together, but Sparta was the first among all the other city-states and therefore was the hegemon. King Philip II and later his son, Alexander, were likewise the hegemons of the Hellenic League, also called the League of Corinth which was another collection of city-states, also in modern-day Greece and Macedonia, which banded together to fight neighboring Persia. In this context, the hegemon wasn't a city-state, but the leader of a city-state, or the two sequential leaders of a city-state, and the term transitioned from group to individual to recognize the power of a single autocrat whose will was fulfilled by the nation that he ruled absolutely. The Pax Romana was a period of about 200 years during which there was relative peace in the Roman Empire, and this, too, is considered to be an example of a hegemony. Rather than a group working together for a particular end, or a totalitarian figure, however, in this case we see a collection of conquered groups under the head of one cultural rule at a point in which there was very little fighting or internal struggle, taking on the title of hegemon. Elsewhere in the world, there was a ruler named Harsha, who ruled over most of north and northwestern India for about 40 years in the 7th century. He ruled this vast area of land, but intentionally left regional rulers on their thrones, allowing them to rule, but under his direct influence. They made decisions for themselves, but paid tribute to him. Harsha, too, is considered to have been a hegemon. In a chapter of the 2014 book, The Politics of International Political Economy, author Jayantha Jamin posits that there have been four main periods of Western hegemony from the 15th century through the 19th century. The first by Portugal from 1494 until 1580, which was defined by their dominance in navigation the second by Holland from 1580 until 1688, which was based on their control of credit and money, the third by Britain from 1688 until 1792, which was defined by their textiles and naval superiority, and the fourth also had Britain as the hegemon from 1815 until 1914, which was achieved through the dominance of their industrial might and railroads. There were other periods of regional and flash-in-the-pan hegemonies during those four centuries, but most of these brought few of the traditional hegemonic benefits to the rulers, as was the case with King Louis XIV and Napoleon and their attempts to become hegemons of Europe. Their efforts were stifled by Britain in most cases, and therefore they had relatively limited impact 
at least compared to other fully fleshed out hegemonies over the centuries. Moving into the 20th century, we saw many so-called great powers with a capital G and a capital P, but no global hegemonies. And because diplomacy and politics and war had become increasingly global and less strictly localized, this meant that regional spheres of influence, like those owned by the British and the Japanese and the United States and many others, spheres of influence that, at any other time in history, may have been considered hegemonies, were no longer what they would have been in those past centuries. Was it impressive that the United States influenced a great deal of what happened in Latin America? Sure. Was it a hegemony of the kind that Rome enjoyed back when the Mediterranean world was theirs to control, and the world beyond that region was cut off by geography and other factors? No way. There's no comparison. Mid-century, though, after World War II, the number of great powers in the world shrunk, and those that remained, those that could be called global powers, and in the case of the U.S. and Soviet Union, global superpowers, because their spheres of influence extended much further than those of most other nations, came together to form the United Nations. What followed was a period that we often call the Cold War, and which is considered by many to be a globe-spanning struggle between two sprawling hegemonies, that of the communist Soviet Union and that of the capitalist United States. What's notable here is how the term has once again changed shape, as the nature of rule and diplomacy has also changed. The United States did not rule the countries that it worked with, and in some cases ordered around as part of the NATO alliance, and yet it still had massive enough influence to be considered the leader of this group. It was the most vital of components in a powerful multi-component system. It was more of an alliance between countries to ensure that none were targeted individually, a mutual protection agreement similar to the one that existed between Warsaw Pact countries, which was, similar to the United States situation, kind of ruled by the Soviets, but not in a direct way. The countries were still technically individual countries, but they shared enough desires and priorities and ideology, not to mention perceived enemies, to make it worth their while to team up. As part of that teaming up, they sacrificed a portion of their autonomy, but they also gained a powerful ally. The same was true of the United States and its NATO allies. Coming into the 21st century, the Soviet Union dissolved, and the United States was left as the singular hegemon left standing. But many have argued, and fairly convincingly, in my opinion, that the United States never achieved the status of global hegemon, despite its counterbalance, the Soviets, disappearing. The world is just too big a place, and the U.S., though massively influential, was never Rome to the world's Mediterranean. Instead, the United States has a great deal of influence with a great number of different nations, and even something like a hegemony within its large sphere of influence locally. But other smaller and still powerful regional powers have greater localized influence within their personal spheres than the U.S. does. China, then, as well as the shifting tides of Europe, which is usually led by Germany and France these days, as well as the still influential Britain, and at times various governments in South America, have outsized impact in their respective regions. Their reach is not as large, but it is quite potent locally 
while the United States is spread relatively thin over a larger surface. And therefore, it has a little bit of sway everywhere, at least a little bit of sway, but not as much in most places as the hegemonies of the past had in their areas of influence. That said, there are others who see the United States as the first of a new type of hegemony. Just as the term changed many times in the past, it's posited that this word once again took on new meaning in a world in which all nations are inextricably connected, and trade and communication are far more powerful and rapid than ever before in history. The U.S. might lack the military might to put down opposition by the entire planet within its entire presumed domain, but they do have massive amounts of soft power, of cultural and economic and diplomatic power, which, when paired with their still quite formidable military might, adds up to something more tactically useful than more traditional and somewhat cumbersome hard power in the 21st century. What I want to talk about today is cultural soft power, and in particular how cultural soft power can change hands without a shot being fired or a conflict being declared. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start from today is from Fortune, and it's entitled, Can China Save Hollywood? This article lays down some pretty sobering numbers about the state of movie theater attendance in the United States. The number of movie tickets sold each year in the U.S. and Canada has dropped by 80 million. That's 80 million fewer tickets sold every year over the course of the past decade. And per capita attendance is down to under four tickets per person per year, which is a 14% drop since 2007. So there's a drop even for people who are still going to movie theaters. On the other hand, as this article details, things are looking pretty dang good for the film industry in China. From the article, quote, Last year alone, the country added more than 7,500 silver screens, and its national total surpassed the number in the U.S., which has stayed constant at about 40,000 since 2013. At some point in the near future, projections range from a few months to two years, China will also overtake the U.S. as the largest generator of box office revenue in the world. Already, the Chinese media and entertainment industry as a whole is worth an estimated $180 billion, end quote. So, a pretty big opportunity there. And this article goes on to use the newest Fast and the Furious movie, and apparently there are eight of these movies in the series, which is just astounding to me. That is a lot of car stunts and explosions. But that movie recently became the best-selling Hollywood movie ever in China. Now, it's worth mentioning that most movies do not make it into China. It only recently upped its foreign movie cap from 34 to 38, meaning it only allows 38 movies not made in China to be shown in China each year. For contrast, there are over 700 theatrical releases in the U.S. each year. And that doesn't take into account many indie films and foreign films that have recently become available in the region, and film and film-like content that is made for Netflix and other on-demand mediums. 
And as a result of this massive import limitation, most of the big hits in China right now are made by Chinese studios. And few of these locally made movies have any brand name recognition. There's no Wonder Woman, no James Bond. And many of them fall into the absurdist comedy category, which is a genre that's relatively cheap to make and which doesn't tend to translate well outside of the culture in which it's produced. That type of comedy is usually just way too culturally specific. But again, despite the limited number of movies brought into the country each year, China is the new hot place to be for film studios. They've experienced a 144% growth in box office revenues since 2012, compared to a 6% growth in the U.S. And they recently surpassed the U.S. in total number of movie screens in the country. They now have 40,917, compared to the U.S.'s 40,759. Now, foreign markets in general have become increasingly important to U.S.-based studios over the past decade or so, in part because of the crazy amount of content that is easily available and accessible to U.S. consumers. It's worth remembering that video games and books and concerts and myriad other entertainment options also compete with movie watching for America's recreation budget. But these markets are also becoming more important because they are reaching meaningful points numerically. In the U.S. and many other Western nations, we went through a period of theater building in the 80s and 90s, and we were already fleshing out and upgrading that infrastructure in the decades before that. And in the age of pinball and arcades, the movie theater was a seriously cool place to be. Alongside malls, it was one of our third places of choice. That is the place that we would go that was not home or work for adults, or home or school for kids. This is no longer the case, though, as theaters have become just one more entertainment option among many, and a somewhat expensive and inconvenient one at that, compared to our other options. In places like China, on the other hand, the movie theater is just now arriving for many locals. Which isn't to say that they didn't have theaters before, but rather that because of the recent and immensely rapid growth of the middle class in the country, a huge quantity of people are only just now able to consider doing middle class things, like buying $7 coffees and spending more money each month on entertainment. Now there are, of course, similar entertainment options in China as there are in the US, but because movie theaters are somewhat novel and interesting to them, and because the theaters that they are building are all modern and have all the cool bells and whistles that U.S. theaters have been comparatively slow to adopt, 78% of the screens in China are for 3D movies, for instance, compared to only 39% in the U.S. Because of that, attendance at movie theaters in China has been substantially higher than in other places where the movie theater heyday arrived earlier. It's also important to note that up to 95% of a film's total revenue is generated in theaters. That number can vary greatly, especially if you take into account merchandising opportunities like action figures and t-shirts, and the increasing attention that's being paid to various at-home on-demand services. But initial theatrical releases still make up a heaping portion of the overall money pulled in for most big-budget studio films. 
And what we're seeing is a shift toward newly emerging middle-class heavy markets worldwide for that kind of participation in the movie theater industrial complex. That most recent Fast and the Furious movie, The Fate of the Furious, made $388 million in China. It only made $215 million in the United States. The economic weight in this space is shifting, and very quickly. But why is this even interesting? Why is it important to anyone other than movie producers that new movie markets are opening up, even if those new markets happen to be huge? To answer that question, we have to dig into what happens when consumption patterns shift, and particularly what happens when consumption patterns shift from one country to another country. If you are a corporation, you tend to go where the money is, and you adjust your products to ensure that they fit within that market. With products, this means coming up with localized versions very often. Tesla, the electric car company and battery company, initially struggled to make a dent in the Chinese market, but it ended up making $1 billion in sales there in 2016, and it looks to be on pace to double that in 2017. How did they accomplish this? After years of professional, very well-informed assumptions that they would be booted out of the country before making any significant sales there, joint ventures, partnerships with influential government-connected individuals, and marketing their products in terms that the locals understood and cared about, focusing especially on the green technology their product utilized, while clearly distinguishing its luxury construction and operation from all the cheap electric cars that are currently being churned out and sold in the area. Sometimes it's a shift in approach, in politics, and messaging, like with Tesla. And sometimes localization requires a complete overhaul, requiring a new flavor of chips, a new stylistic flair to your clothing, or completely different software or operating systems on your devices. With cultural products like music and movies, this move to a new market often means adjusting the content of that media to better suit local tastes. A recent stark example of this, pun very much intended, is that of Iron Man 3, a movie that was released in 2013 and which was one of the few dozen foreign films that China allowed into the country that year. There were two versions of Iron Man 3 put out onto the market. One was released in China, and the other was released in the rest of the world, in every other market except China. The Chinese version of this movie includes a more fully fleshed out Dr. Wu character, who is played by a Chinese movie star, and another character who is played by another Chinese movie star, who is credited in both versions of the film, but who shows up only in the Chinese version. Additionally, extra content shot in China, featuring a gaggle of Chinese schoolchildren, and one of the aforementioned Chinese movie star playing a character who saves Iron Man's life, wasn't even shot by the director of the film, Shane Black. Robert Downey Jr., who plays Tony Stark, the man behind Iron Man, never went to China to shoot that portion of the movie. It was all put together in China by a Chinese crew and Chinese actors, and then shoehorned into the film, and apparently approved because the producers knew it would please the government officials in charge of approving foreign films for sale in the country. It certainly wasn't because they thought it would please the fans. Many Chinese film bloggers, in fact, said that the obvious second-thought addition 
to the movie was pretty lame. And it was even a little bit offensive that they were being shown this cheaply made add-on to the movie, while the rest of the world saw the actual movie, where all the pieces made sense together. They liked that there were Chinese actors and environments shown, but that it was so badly done and such an obvious ploy to get their movie approved to be shown in the country, that came across as kind of an insult. The 2012 time travel science fiction film Looper did something similar when they released an extended version of the film for Chinese audiences at the request of the Chinese production company through which the film would be released in the country. The extended version contains longer scenes set in Shanghai, which were substantially cut in the international release version because it ruined the pacing of the movie. According to people involved with the film, quoted in an LA Times story, they didn't care very much about the pacing for the Chinese version, as it was more important to them that Chinese audiences saw more of their country represented than the most perfect version of the movie they could make. There are numerous examples of localized versions of international films being released, especially in Chinese, and generally they are similarly half-assed in terms of quality and thoughtfulness. Throwing a bone to the Chinese production companies and censors seems easy enough, and it doesn't change the international versions that are shown elsewhere, and it allows them to reap huge monetary rewards from a burgeoning market. Other movies, however, are going whole hog with changes to suit the Chinese audience from a very foundational level. That new Fast and the Furious movie made adjustments to the main movie itself rather than adding things on later. They adjusted content with the Chinese market in mind from the very beginning. As mentioned in the Fortune article, they left out a lot of the salaciousness that was found in past entries of the series, knowing that it would have to be removed for a Chinese version if they put it in there, and they focused on things that seemed to translate well into that and other foreign markets without requiring any additional effort. Namely, they focused on stunts and simple plots and beautiful actors and a lack of subversive ideas like sex and political content. And to quote a film expert from the article, they tried to stick with things that have proven successful in China in the past, including, quote, smashing stuff up and being brave, end quote. In other words, the producers of this film allowed the regulations of the intended market to determine the content of their creation. And this, frankly, is not new. This has almost always been what has determined the content of movies and TV shows and other media. But the primary audience, for a very long time, and arguably for the entire history of film, which isn't super long, has been a Western audience, mainly North America and Europe. And the value systems in the Western world are different enough in certain respects from their Eastern counterparts that what we will likely see more of as a result in this shift in audience numbers and spending habits is a shift in the cultural content of movies, TV shows, music, games, and other media to better align with the value systems of these new markets. If the new market to which the center of economic gravity was shifting was someplace like, let's say, the UK, or even someplace like Japan, this wouldn't be as monumental and meaningful a shift 
There would still be changes, but the differences would pale in comparison to the difference between not just preferences, but also fundamental beliefs about society and governments and ethics and so on between the United States and any non-Western, non-liberal democracy country. In China, everything is more heavily regulated and controlled by a central governing body. Their internet is censored, blocking many external sources and providing local replacements, all of which are also controlled and monitored by the government. Local journalism must be approved by government censors and the economy, while not a total planned economy, like was found in the Soviet Union, is still centrally orchestrated to a large degree by the government. Those with party connections have huge advantages, while those without any connections to the government live in a completely different reality. Though I should mention that in that last case, the U.S. and many liberal democracies may have more in common with China than most Americans would like to admit. What this means in practice is that what's considered okay and not okay to put in a movie in China when it comes to everything from sex and violence to the nationality and political leanings of the heroes and villains may be very different from what's okay and what's not okay to put in a movie in the United States. At the moment, you'd be hard-pressed to find a superhero in a big-budget flick who wasn't in favor of fighting for freedom in the democratic sense of the word. But that word might mean something very different to someone living within a socialist dictatorship. As the audience, and resultantly the money, shifts toward the Chinese sphere of influence, the content of media produced for their audience will also shift. This shift has already started, and it's likely we'll see more of this and more explicit examples of it in the near future. So why does this matter? What's the big deal if more non-American, non-Western values find themselves in movies made for international audiences? From the standpoint of morality and being morally malleable, maybe there's nothing wrong. It's just a different set of ideas. But from the political perspective, it's important because cultural dominance is a form of soft power. For much of the 20th and 21st centuries, the United States has been the largest consumer market, not in terms of people, but in terms of money spent on stuff. This has influenced global popular culture because companies worldwide have made things, possessions and music and movies and everything else, that would appeal to this massive and lucrative market. That's just smart business. You don't market to the people who don't have enough money or a large enough population to buy what you're producing. So you go someplace with enough people who have enough money and who are willing to spend that money on what you have to sell to make it worth your while. And that's what's brought so much business and so many products to the United States for a very long while, for most of modern history. Over time, this favoring of American consumers has influenced global culture. When everyone in the movies and music and popular websites are speaking English, it makes English more appealing and financially beneficial as a language to learn. Likewise, when everyone in these spaces is adhering, broadly speaking, to a set of values that are appealing to Western audiences, then a lot of the people outside the liberal democratic sphere of influence are also passively absorbing those same messages from a very young age. It's not just young kids from Cincinnati watching American heroes save the world 
and authoritarian bad guys kill people. It's also kids in authoritarian countries who are taking in those same messages. It's not just young adults in the relatively sexually liberated West consuming sexually charged music and TV shows. It's also young adults in the relatively sexually repressed Middle East. The concept of dating in the let's get a coffee and go on a date and see if we like each other sense of the word was unfamiliar to many cultures up until very recently. I've had people in several places that I've lived personally, including Argentina and India, tell me that ever since the TV show Friends from the US and other sitcoms and movies with plots that orbited around US dating culture, ever since those shows came to their country, more people have adopted that style of dating. Before those shows and movies and such arrived, the primary way that most people met their mate was through arranged marriages or get-togethers that were set up by their families, or by hooking up randomly, and then maybe if you hooked up with the same person several times, perhaps drunkenly, then you were kind of just dating. There were so many different models, so many different ways that people ended up getting together in a relationship that maybe eventually led to marriage. But the American version of dating, as was presented on Friends and other similar TV shows, spread that concept and made it the template that many other cultures adopted. Because suddenly everyone was watching this show where these attractive, interesting people were dating in this very specific way. They were asking people out for a coffee. They were talking for a while to get to know each other. They were having sex before marriage. It was enough to make people think, well, maybe that's worth a shot. It normalized that dating concept. It made people think, even if subconsciously, that this way of doing things was normal. And eventually, it resulted in more US-style dating around the world. Not to mention a demonstrable increase in coffee shop culture, Western music, and the romanticism of American cities, and other things that were featured in the show. Now, does this mean that conquest by culture is a possibility? Are Friends reruns going to make Western culture the dominant global hegemony? No, probably not. But entertainment steeped in unfamiliar ideas can open us up to new ways of thinking that we might otherwise never have considered. It can change our minds, or at the very least be a contributing factor in changing our minds. It is suspected by some cultural historians that the TV show Will and Grace may have helped change attitudes about gay marriage within the United States, especially in the more conservative regions of the country. I don't think anyone is claiming that this show and this show alone is why gay people can now legally get married in the U.S. Most studies seem to indicate that for many people who changed their mind on the issue, the biggest shift occurred when they realized they knew someone, a friend or a family member that was gay. But pop culture touch points like Will and Grace may have helped more people feel comfortable about coming out. And as a result, more people realized they knew someone from the LGBT community. And that realization impacted their opinion on the matter. It made the issue feel closer to home. Whereas before, it was easy to justify away as a purely abstract issue. The term cultural hegemony was coined by a Marxist intellectual named Antonio Gramsci. And it means, roughly, the cultural domination of an otherwise diverse society by a ruling class who maintains their dominance by instilling their values and beliefs 
in everyone else. In the Marxist worldview, capitalism is an example of a philosophy imposed by those who flourish under capitalistic systems on those who suffer under those same systems. So those who are succeeding wildly under capitalism through many different means do what they can to make those who are suffering under that same system feel that the system is nonetheless amazing and awesome and worth defending. I feel like this term also applies pretty well to cultural influencers. The writers, directors, actors, and other celebrities who arise from prominent projects that disseminate cultural norms. Movies, music, artwork, these are all potential covert carriers of ideology. But these influencers themselves, too, are vectors of the same types of things. And actresses, politics, might help spread a particular political viewpoint to her fans, even if she communicates these ideas through Instagram rather than her work on the silver screen. When the weight of consumer power shifts, though, that same actress might find herself unable to work on films intended for particular audiences, lest the movie she's auditioning for be banned from an economically vital market due to the disapproval of the local censors. A celebrity who's a big proponent of human rights, then, may find that she's incentivized to tone down the rhetoric on her social media accounts, lest she be passed by for a leading role in a movie that is meant to be exported to the Chinese market. In this way, even influencers can be influenced by the subtle forces of economic gravity. Now think about the concept of cultural hegemony on a broader scale. Part of what has made the United States such a soft power powerhouse, meaning that it has many methods of leveraging power that are indirect and not military-related, during this past century is what it produces in the culture it exports. But part of why it has such powerful broadcast capabilities, such a massive megaphone through which to shout whatever it likes, is that it has an incredibly huge internal market. Hollywood flourishes in part because there has always been a huge regional audience to sell to, and as a result, Hollywood has generally outshone copycats worldwide, which in turn allowed it to grow and spread Americanized Western values everywhere its movies were exported. But another equally important half of that soft power stems from having influence over the consumption side of the markets, like I mentioned before. Because Americans buy so much stuff, creators of things elsewhere are incentivized to adjust their own products and services to suit the U.S. citizenry's tastes. Some companies make numerous local versions of their products, but particularly for cultural products like movies, these changes are often built into the product's structure rather than being an extra coating of paint. And this is particularly true when the producer is working with a smaller budget than the big U.S. movie houses can afford, which they sometimes use to cobble on extra scenes to their films after the fact. It's worth noting that it's not always the power of the story being told through these mediums that determines how influential the work being exported might be, but rather the size of the producing entity's megaphone. Disney has created an empire on the back of appropriated folktales and traditional stories from other cultures, retold for Western audiences. To many, the Disney version of Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and Cinderella have become the true versions of these stories, despite their being based on traditional stories told around the world for generations. In this way, 
children from within the culture in which these stories originate might grow up thinking that, for instance, Disney's Mulan, including the many westernized values that it enunciates in its storyline, is the legit version of their traditional Ballad of Mulan from the South and Northern Dynasties period of Chinese history. Again, this is not because one story is inherently better than another, but rather because Disney and the Hollywood film marketing and distribution machine can broadcast the cartoon version of Mulan through a far larger megaphone than could have ever been mustered to disseminate the ancient Chinese poem about a historical female warrior. The United States has had an incredibly powerful megaphone for much of recent history, especially post-World War II. Even when the quality of some of the work being produced has been debatable, the amplification capabilities demonstrated by media entities within the U.S. have been impressive, to the point of overwhelming and outshining other work, and at times far better work, that is produced elsewhere. And this is certainly not to say that there isn't amazing stuff being produced in the U.S., but rather it's to indicate that when a U.S. media company directly competes with a similar company from elsewhere, the U.S. company has a huge advantage because of the large scale and income of the local audience and the relative benefits that come with infrastructure, technology, relatively lax regulations, and other advantages that come from just operating in this particular country. And it's this megaphone that we have long enjoyed that is up for grabs here. As Chinese audiences become more vital to many different media markets, an increasing amount of the work being produced around the world will be adjusted to suit their priorities. This is not new, and this is not even wrong. It's simply an advantage that other nations have held for a good long while, and which is likely to move on to a new host in the very near future. It's important to recognize that this is happening, because it helps us understand why, looking around, a Westerner might feel culturally superior due to the seeming omnipresence of their ideas scattered throughout pop culture, even though there are other ideas that are held with equal regard, and in some cases by far more people, elsewhere in the world. It's easy to believe that democracy is this obvious thing to root for, but for a huge percentage of the planet, that's simply not the case. It may seem that cultural plurality and government accountability and a free press are obvious cultural priorities, but again, for a lot of people, this is not the case, no matter what we see on TV shows and in the movies. It only seems that these are priorities because very often we look around and that's what we see. It's a filter bubble, much like the ones that we encounter on social media, where these networks show us things that agree with our existing ideologies and preferences. And lacking an awareness of this reality, we are just as prone to making flawed assumptions about the supremacy of our ideologies in the real world as we are online when we are constantly exposed to ideas that merely support our own rather than challenging them. The shifting of weight, the handing off of that biggest of cultural megaphones, it could take a while, or it could take only a couple of years. To some people, in some industries, the handover has already taken place. And some people are already looking forward to a time, also in the not-so-distant future, when that megaphone switches hands once again to maybe an Indian superstate in which the country's current economic issues have been taken care of, 
and more stable governmental processes have taken hold, and something very much like a less authoritarian Chinese economy comes to dominate global markets and cultural conversation. Of course, it could be someone else whose voice rises higher after China has had its turn. Or maybe someone will swoop in beforehand, snagging that megaphone before China can get a proper grip on it. And they instead will share their ideas far and wide. Maybe the US will change things around and redouble its hold for a while, prepping for another century of cultural hegemony, if not absolute hegemony. Whatever the future may hold in this space, understanding these forces that can influence and amplify our beliefs, or simply echo them and make them seem amplified, allows us to more clearly see what's happening in the world, but also better understand how we are manipulated and how we also at times can be passive participants in the large-scale manipulation of others. The book that I'd like to recommend today is one that I read several years ago when it first came out. It's entitled The Victorian Internet, and it's by Tom Standage. And this is a book that starts at the beginning of the history of the telegraph and follows its creation as kind of an analog system of essentially windmills that could signal other windmills on other hills at a distance and then pass on a message in what would seem to be, by today's standards, a very slow way, but by the standards of the time was incredibly quick, all the way up to the electrification of telegraph wires and spanning those telegraph wires from continent to continent under the oceans, and how this technology in its many different iterations influenced society and changed the course of history and changed the way that we think about things like relationships and communication and time and business. It was an extraordinarily influential technology that came around at an extraordinarily important time. And its different incarnations actually influenced several different important pivot points in history. If you're looking to understand the internet and the mobile internet and smartphones and the way that modern technologies are influencing the world and what could happen next, this story to me serves as a very valuable analogy because it is the story of the Victorian internet. It is the story of what happened when this type of dramatic changeover happened in a previous time. You can find out more about me and the work that I do, including the books that I have written at colin.io. You can find me on pretty much every social network at Colin is my name. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of Let's Know Things at letsknowthings.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. 